think it's okay to not know, but I think it's also okay to try something out that may be a little scary or an unknown and being okay with making a mistake or knowing like, hey, this is what I'm going to see how this path is working out for me. With a lot of inclusion related work, I think people are very afraid to hurt someone else and that comes from a very good place. But what that also does is it could potentially create more harm. Like, oh, I don't know if I should speak up for this person because maybe I'll get in trouble so I'm not gonna say anything. But then that person isn't advocated for and supported. Welcome back to another episode of Design to Be Conversation presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be co-founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how they continue to learn, grow, and skill build throughout their careers. Each episode will not only help you navigate your career more effectively, but they will even enable you to build better products as a result. Let's dive into it. In this episode, I chat with Samira Kapila. Samira is a designer, educator, manager, and writer who works as a senior product designer at Netlify. Born in India, raised on the Dutch island of Curacao, and currently living in Austin, Texas, Samira has held roles in agencies, educational institutions, and consultancies, ranging from individual contributor to executive leadership, student to educator, and everything in between. She writes and speaks about web and product design, diversity, inclusion and equity, tech education, and design research and process. She's written regularly for The Pastry Box Project and Net Magazine, and spoken at events such as Creative Mornings, South by Southwest HBCU Track, Design Slash Content, and Clarity. We dive into how she develops new skills through learning by doing, and we chat all about inclusive design communities, how to foster them, and much, much more. We even get a little preview into her new book that just came out, Inclusive Design Communities. You can check it out now on abookapart.com. Welcome, Samira, to the show. Hi. This episode has been a long time coming. And I was trying to remember even how we originally got connected because it was it was a while ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe we were introduced in March or April of this mm-hmm. year by one of your previous guests, Sabrina Hall, who is yes. a dear yes. friend, and she is my birthday twin, too, which I love. We met at a conference sort of retreat a couple of years ago for women in design leadership roles called within and we've stayed in touch ever since. I love the connection and I was really excited of when she shared the amazing things that you're up to and uh, we'll dive into all of that. But at a high level, what I want to start to dive into is um, changes that happen within uh, our careers. I'd love if you could dive into maybe the story that you were sharing with me before of the first time you got the title with manager or lead in it. And it possibly didn't really feel like a manager per se. Oh, yeah. Even going a step back from there, I 
was in grad school thinking I was going to like get the degree so I could be an art director because I had previously been in advertising. And that program ended up because I was moving to Texas, I got in-state tuition if I taught as a grad student. And suddenly the teaching part just sort of clicked. And I guess in a way that's sort of leading a classroom, but I didn't think of it as like a manager role. And the first time I actually got a manager role was after leaving the university and working at a code school, I was promoted to manage all instructors. So that was design, front-end engineering, back-end engineering, and mobile. And that just felt like the imposter syndrome kicked in into like hyperdrive because who am I to manage engineers? Like they can't run their code by me if I don't know what the code is. And it was really my boss at the time that promoted me to replace him in his role because he was doing like three different roles at the code school and he needed to not be doing three anymore. But he saw something that I guess I didn't see at the time was that there was some leadership or leading skills that I had and especially having so much prior teaching experience that I could help use that to teach engineers how to be great instructors. So that was sort of where that started, but it took a while for it to hit me that like, I can do this. For a long time, it was, I think they've made a big mistake. Why did I say yes? In that moment, like, what was that like tipping point for you of okay, no, I actually, I can do this. And I was asked to do this for a reason. I don't know if there was an exact moment where it hit me, but I think what hit me more was the first time I felt like I was making a decision on behalf of the team of like, this is what we as an instructor team want in advocating for them. And I was like, oh, wait, I'm advocating for my team. I think I'm a leader. Oh my goodness. Like, I think that's what it actually kicked in. Not running meetings, not hiring anybody. It was advocating for how to manage like instructing time and lab time with students and having a balance of like what our responsibilities are. That's when it actually was like, oh, I have to do this. It's my responsibility because my team depends on me. And that's when it really clicked that I was in the right place. Yeah. And in that situation where like for the first time, I it, like to me, it's like <laughs> that moment, it, it's kind of scary. Of like, okay, these people are are looking at me in this way and in this light. Were there, and are there now like skills that you needed to embody or learn in order to feel comfortable stepping into that role? I'm not sure what I needed at the time. It sort of felt like because I was in an educational environment, just being in the traditional classroom and then the like code school model, I think the idea of learning or changing was always sort of like part of the classroom experience. So it sort of bled into the employer employee experiences too. So it felt okay to learn on the job after a while, because it was sort of a startup type of mentality of like, okay, well, we don't know how to do this, we'll figure it out. And I think having that sort of mindset, I guess, if that counts as a skill set, having that mentality I think was like the most important part. I want to shift gears a little bit and provide folks a bit more color on the book that you've been working on. Can you share a bit more about that? And then we can, there's a lot in there that I want to dive into. Yeah, I think sort of similar to this idea of I went from advertising into 
accidentally teaching and then liking it and then staying in that path. I've written a book that is, from my perspective, covering what we as a design industry need to do to make the industry more inclusive. And I think we've heard a lot of terminology about systems of oppression and inclusion, and they've been all sort of buzzwords. But I don't think we're getting to the core of like, these are things we need to do, and here's how to do them. And so what I'm trying to write a book on is taking all these prior experiences of I went to school. I was I wore the student hat. I wore the advertising agency designer hat. I've worn the grad student who teaches hat, then teacher and then manager of teachers, then you know, everything else that's happened in my career since moving back into being a designer and then a design manager and taking the step back, looking at all of those places that designers exist and trying to pinpoint what are things that we can do immediately. So a good example of that in the education sense is I remember a lot of programs having like art history courses. So something like Italian Renaissance was like a course that was required for everybody to take. And there wasn't a lot of representation of other parts of the world that weren't North America or Europe. They maybe got like a day in class, but there was never a class named after those that I could take and say, now I understand Asian art history or from the continent of Africa or Australian. Like there just wasn't something that was covering other parts of the world or other cultures. It was very Swiss typographic design, Bauhaus, everything was so centered in Europe. So talking about curriculum changes and how can we introduce more of that sort of work. So that's one example of lots of examples in the book of pinpointing environments that designers or learning designers exist and what we can do to make sure it's more inclusive and more global. As you were talking, I was getting like flashbacks to like art history <laughs> classes uh, mm-hmm. that, that I took and getting typography and Bauhaus flashbacks. And there really aren't those other options. And in the vein of uh, maybe younger designers or even more senior designers aiming to develop these kinds of skill sets and in the areas that it's not available for them. How can folks start to like forge these paths and possibly start to create these more inclusive spaces? Well, maybe in the frame of the education space, since we've been talking about that, or feel free to take it whichever way makes sense. Well, I think one thing overall is that we're all individually responsible for our own education to some extent. Now, I know that access isn't always available, but I think for those of us that do have access, it is important to ask questions and not just go with the status quo. Like thinking of breaking out of what we already know and trying to be curious and looking for something else. And there's so many great resources now. There's a book called Queer Design by an old colleague of mine at Texas State, Andy Campbell, and it covers the history of design and queer movements. So poster design and things around Stonewall and just the history of diving into what protest buttons look like, what slogans were used and how they've been adapted or adopted by movements today that have to do with other civil rights. So there's just this deeper, rich history if we go and look for it, of course, that's not easily accessible to everyone. So then how do we also make things more accessible? 
there's a lot of expensive textbooks that students are forced to buy where we need to think more about what are other resources, like even just the web being a source of truth. One example of something I love on the web that teaches us more about design and design history is, I think it's called BIPOCdesignhistory.com. And they're putting out very structured, thoughtful courses on covering other parts of the world. So when we think about the different identities, there's the BIPOC side that I just talked about that were Black, Indigenous, people and people of color side of things. Like there's so many identities that can be brought into design because design is sort of everywhere. So if we go out and look for those things, I try to do a good job with the book to try to compile a big list of here's where to start. So hopefully people will read the book and also look at some of those examples there. Where my mind started going as you were talking is there's the educational context of which we've been swimming in, we'll say. And then there's also more of the working world context. I think it was, he's a previous guest on the show, Terrence Williams. He wrote an amazing blog post and uh, more or less it was about how, similar to what you were saying, how his background as a black man and his design choices based on his culture were different than uh, the standards of what was expected of Swiss design, et cetera. I'm curious in corporate environment and startup environment where we have these like design system best practices, or we all need to fit in within like iOS or Android <laughs> systems. How can designers start to think of expanding design systems or expanding a design way of thinking in the context of these systems that already exist? I feel like that's where my mind gets a little caught of because there's all these layers of systems. There's all these layers of identities. And maybe a designer is like, I want to try something. I want to do something. But Ah, where? <laughs> so I'm curious how you'd recommend folks to start to think about all of those different layers. One of my favorite places that immediately comes to mind is a conference called Clarity. And Clarity is run by a designer named Gina Ann. And Gina has run it for quite a while. And their work in curating who speaks at it and what topics are really thoughtful their approach has been to talk about like things like design systems, but that inclusion is a part of it. So there's a lot of conversations about accessibility. There's some about code. There's some about visual design and illustration. So I think that is just a great conference in general. And Gina has made it very accessible with scholarships for different identities, specifically ones that are marginalized. They've also made all of the videos available on YouTube. So you can look up Clarity Conference and see a lot of the different topics. So I think that's a great accessible one right away. I think the design systems community and the work that Gina and others have done has, to me, always felt like there was this undertone of inclusion. There was a lot of documentation, a lot of people sharing notes across different teams, like, oh, we're all learning from the Salesforce design system. And this is something that we can use or even that Google material is available. And I think it can be a little bit tough to say, am I just falling into the Android or Apple design of things? But I think a lot of those tools being available helps give us a framework of components to work with. And then that's where we can sort of introduce 
new things that we want to try. I think looking at also the work that people are doing in other countries is really important. Like their interpretations of what a skeuomorphic or not skeuomorphic flat design pattern might be a little bit different. And so I try to look things up that I just do a lot of Googling is really the truth and put together words that maybe I hadn't put together before. But I find that the design systems community, which there's a Slack channel for it, that's just been a really helpful place to talk about things. Like something that came up the other day in that Slack group was around how when we like shared design handoff work, there's a lot of different ways that people do that. And in the past, we've said, oh, we'll redline it and say like, oh, this font is supposed to be 16 pixels or this is supposed to be this you know, RGB value. But then we had a conversation around the origin of redlining, what that has to do with housing and access and like the more neighborhood or city planning sense. And then we as a group were just talking about, we need to remove that from our vocabulary as designers. So I think even conversations like that and being in those spaces where people are having those conversations is really important. Yeah. Then being more hyper aware of the language that we're using and how that affects the identities that we all are wearing and carrying. Yeah, I think being aware of language is a big part. And I do talk about that in the book too. There's a lot of things that we probably think are like just innocent or that we haven't really given a second thought. And then looking into those words further, they do have implications or have history attached to them that may or may not be intentionally tied, but I think it is important to know what those things are. And I think people have a fear of making a mistake, like, oh no, I said the wrong thing. And I think it's actually okay to make the mistake and to actually have the opportunity to learn from someone else and be thankful for the fact that they're sharing that. I think a good example for me was one time I was talking about... can't remember exactly what it was, but probably something with like a a billing plan or something related to an apps plan. I was like, oh, do users get grandfathered in? And somebody paused me and said, do you know the origin of grandfathered? And I didn't at the time. It was something I heard, you know, when I uh, like upgrade my phone and I'm like, do I still get to keep my plan? It's something I've heard every phone company talk about like, oh, and you'll get grandfathered into your plan. But the history of that word has to do with voting rights for black men. And there's a whole history behind it that I think we could spend a whole hour on, but (laughs) I would actually recommend to anybody listening to this to go look that up and do your own research. But it had to do with, if I remember correctly, making rules to suppress black men's vote. I think this was before women were allowed to vote by, I don't know why they used grandfather. I think it was like, oh, two generations ago had to own land. Like if you are a grandson of a landowner, then you have the right to vote. And because this was tied to times when Black people weren't allowed to own land, they weren't allowed to vote because they didn't fall into that category. So it was a form of voter suppression. That term has history and now it's used in another way, but that history is really important to know. So I think just looking at, you know, hey, we say this thing, Or, hey, we do this thing. Are we doing that because we want to or it's just because it's how we've always done it and questioning that. 
We are going to take a short break to hear an exciting update from Design to Be. Design to Be has been researching and ideating on a digital product. We're super excited about what's in the works, but we need your help. We are looking to chat with heads of design, design managers, and IC designers to better understand the design process at your organization. If you are open for a 30-minute call with me and or Design to Be's co-founder and CTO, Keith Stevens, head to designtobe.com forward slash app to join our waitlist. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E dot com forward slash A-P-P. After adding your name to the waitlist, we'll then follow up via email. Over a short call, we'll share what we're building, get your feedback, and learn more about your team's design process. These calls directly impact the future of what we're building at Design to Be. So thank you for your support. And we're excited to continue to build Design to Be together. Now, back to the show. I want to shift gears ever so slightly. There was a couple other pieces that were part of the book that I want to make sure that we touch on. And I'll let you guide of whichever direction, things that make sense. So there's buckets of one, hiring, and then also retention. So when looking at both of these, one from a ways that both you and others can continue to learn, grow, and skill build throughout their career, but then looking at that through the lens of creating these inclusive spaces. Direct me, Samira. Where should we dive in, uncover, share with folks that are listening? Okay, that is a great question. And I think I could talk about hiring so, so much. In fact, in the first or second version of the draft, my editors came back to me and they're like, you've written two books. You have the book that you proposed, and then you have a hiring chapter that's about 40,000 words. And our books typically are around 30K. So do you want to write the hiring book or do you want to zoom out and like go with what you originally intended? And the hiring side is definitely... Something I have a lot of thoughts on, but at the same time, I almost simplify it into one thing and say that in most of the conversations I've seen in design and the tech industry about hiring is that, oh, we need to get people in the door or look, we've hired this many people that are from marginalized identities. What they don't focus on a lot of the times is the retention piece. Like hiring is the easy part. You were Well, it's not easy. Nothing is easy about hiring for any party involved, but that is easier in comparison to retention. And a lot of companies were celebrating we're really inclusive because look at the representation of the team that we hired. This is how many blank identity people we hired in the past year. What they're not focusing on is actually creating an environment for all of those marginalized identities to thrive and be supported in the workplace. And so a lot of people leave. I have a link to a report and they have a tech leavers survey that they did. I think they had close to maybe 500 to 1,000 people who responded to that survey. And like, why do they leave the industry? What caused them to leave? And a lot of times it was, you know, toxic managers or the microaggressions that are like a, a male interrupting a female in a meeting or taking their idea or 
saying that they can't do something technical. So that report is really eye-opening. And I wish I could make every hiring manager read that and say, that's great if you've got people in the door, but that doesn't mean people are going to stay. And that doesn't mean you can just sort of be like, okay, well, we hired, our work is done. The real hard work is in retaining people. And so the retention chapter really gets into a lot of different things, even covering health benefits or the type of benefits that are going to make someone's life better and not necessarily just we have free haircuts in our workplace or there's a ping pong table, like getting to actual, like this is making people's lives better. I'm curious, diving in a a bit deeper with that, what are things that folks can do? Say you're a manager and leading a team and listening to this, but then also someone, maybe they're not in charge of determining benefits for their team. And maybe they're more of an IC. On both of those spectrums, what can folks do to help create an inclusive culture, but then keeping your teammates on your team and creating that engaging space? Yeah, I think I would actually say the same thing for both categories, maybe with like a extra asterisk for managers. But I think it comes down to advocating for things that don't necessarily apply to you. And the best example I can think of that is parental leave. And we think about parental leave, a lot of times it's, oh, there is a person with the uterus who needs the time off because they're going to give birth. It leaves out miscarriages. It leaves out adoption. It leaves out other scenarios, sudden guardianship, which I imagine with COVID, there's a lot of people who suddenly were responsible for other humans just due to the awful nature of the disease. All of those scenarios don't necessarily apply to everyone, but everyone can advocate for workplace policies when it comes to parental leave or guardianship leave to cover those circumstances. And I think one thing that many activists have said is for the parent that is not the one giving birth, for them to also take the full time off that they can take and set more of a culture within their company of just because you're not the one giving birth, you're still a parent to that person. Or if you're adopting whichever scenario, that it is just as important for you to take that time off so that it gets more normalized that there is fair leave provided to parents in any role, right? So you don't have to be the one giving birth, but you should still take that time because then that sets more of a practice of, oh yeah, this is normal to take that time and just advocating for others. In order for someone to feel comfortable expressing, okay, there should also be leave for me too, if I'm not the one carrying the child. There there also needs to be this safe space to feel comfortable expressing that as well. And I've spoken about this with people in the design to be community. There's so many different layers of like cultural dimension at play of feeling comfortable of like being able to state your truth. So I just want to like add that in the background of like, if anyone's also listening where they're like, but (laughs) I don't feel comfortable saying that. And in everything that we're talking about, I want to get your point of view here is everything's on a range of action. If you do feel comfortable and you are in this safe space to advocate for change, hell yeah, go for it. Do it. 
But then if you are in an environment where it really doesn't feel right, there's this like tension that I want to be like sensitive to the people that like are in their situations that are like locked in for X, Y, Z reason. But like what are little small things that then maybe they could even do? I know we also spoke about like in design clubs, conferences, meetups of other ways that like you do have possibly more autonomy in in ways. I think you're right. There's a lot of a lot of times we're not in the safest work experiences. And I think there is a school of thought of if it's not safe for you, leave. And unfortunately, that's not like the best solution for everyone because there may be financial security or some other reason that someone needs to stay. And so rather than focusing on the why are they staying, they should leave. We could potentially make an impact by staying and speaking up. And if speaking up on your own is risky, are there other safe allies or colleagues in the workplace? Perhaps maybe somebody coming back from parental leave that can also join you. I think there's powers in numbers. So finding out if there are others that feel the same way maybe writing a collective letter, uh, maybe an anonymous note that goes to HR, because sometimes there are HR avenues of communication that are like an anonymous form. Could a like company town hall be an option? Could sharing data from, hey, we noticed that this, this, and this company has, you know, blogged about why they did this with their benefits. Using examples from other places makes it a little bit more of like, hey, is there a space that we could talk more about this? Maybe more as a framing question rather than I want this or I don't want to say this because they're going to then target me. With the retention piece, I'm curious if there's any other angles outside of this like advocating bucket that you'd recommend folks touch on when thinking about this hiring retention arena. There's a lot. And I think the initial time I wrote about retention, I was writing to managers. And the more and more I wrote, the more I realized it's not just managers. I do hold managers responsible to advocate for their teams. However, I think it is very possible for anyone to speak to retention and say, hey, these are things that we do or don't want. I mean, I guess that's still advocating. But I think even other ways is talking about team culture and like, hey, I noticed that this person is interrupting this person a lot. Maybe I can pull that person aside and have a conversation with them about how I'm noticing that they're interrupting the other person. So there's a lot in there about here's some good guidelines for inclusive meetings. Here's a way to like remove that sort of what happens with meetings sometimes is people speaking over each other and that can lead to frustration. That can lead to people eventually wanting to leave. So there's more of that in there too outside of advocating just to the higher ups and saying this is the thing that we want. It's more of here's what you as an individual can do to also help members of your team. Upon really diving into understanding this whole bucket of inclusivity, how has that created a shift in your career? So in that same environment where I was a team lead for instructors and then was promoted into director of, I can't even remember my title. I think it was director of instruction. This was at the Iron Yard. It was a code school that sadly does not exist anymore. But at the time we were starting to work with a lot of other code schools and the federal government on just code schools and 
other forms of education that aren't the traditional four-year piece and worked with Tech Hire, which was an initiative sort of under the Obama White House that then is its own separate thing now so that it didn't end when Obama transitioned out of office. We're working on a bunch of different things. So it was things like scholarships. It was very tied to the work I was doing as an instructor and being the umbrella of all instruction. And as an executive team, we had some conversations about this needs more time. It can't just be something that you're doing as a side part of your role. So can you officially take this stuff over? And so that meant having more managers that managed instructors so that I could move into the DEI work. So it was tied to education and it ended up evolving into larger pieces, working more formally with the White House, going to the White House, working with other code schools. And that was, I think at that time, it felt natural for me to step into that because I'd been advocating for students and advocating for instructors just through what my role was. And then this was just adding an extra layer to that. It was advocating for access to that education. So that happened, I guess, sort of naturally. We just sort of made the decision and said, I should focus on this full time. And my colleague and I, who was running like the admissions side and the operational side, she and I had a DEI council where we were working with our company on different initiatives. We built out curriculum for students on how to be inclusive workers when they get to the workplace or workers with like inclusive practices so that they also are part of that ripple effect of changing tech. So we had a lot of things that we built in and worked on. After that role, I went back to being a designer, but that inclusion part never left. It just sort of moved into accessibility and thinking about users and how we need to include all types of users, not just the best case scenarios that we design for, but actually designing for the edge cases. I love the story that you shared. And uh, it really underlines of just following something that lights up a part of you and just going with that and continuing to poke and unfold and noodle and not knowing how or where that could lead you. Yeah. And I think the skills as a designer made this path possible. Just from designers, we're problem solvers. We're trying to think about users at all time. We're trying to make sure that we're educating and delighting people with what we design or help them through a process. So it felt like all of those things transition easily into inclusion related work too because there's problems to solve there. There's trying different things out. There's getting research done and getting feedback done, iterating on something. So I think the two felt really related to me. And even taking a step back from that and taking a step back of like the journey I've had with my career, a lot of that's in the book because I am able to take that step back and look at the different components of the system of my life. I'm, I'm like being cheesy with design terms here, but those are all like components on their own that need to work together to do what I need to do on a daily basis. And it just felt like all of the things that I was seeing, like patterns or gaps, that's what I wrote about in the book. And that's been a lot of like what I've tried to advocate for. And I think that's something as designers, we're system-based thinkers. And that's my approach with a lot of this work is 
what are all the different gaps that we can fill so that we can make design better for everybody. Your story is very inspiring. It's very clear that there's a part of you that just is naturally eager to learn and grow and try new things. For folks that are like, hey, Samira, can you give me some of that? In certain times when maybe you didn't have that same kind of like hunger or thirst of continuing to develop, what could you say to the designers that maybe feel even like a little lost or unsure of which way to go? And any advice for those folks? Yeah, I think it's okay to not know, but I think it's also okay to try something out that may be a little scary or an unknown and being okay with making a mistake or knowing like, hey, this is what I'm going to see how this path is working out for me. With a lot of inclusion related work, I think people are very afraid to hurt someone else. And that comes from a very good place. But what that also does is it could potentially create more harm. Like, oh, I don't know if I should speak up for this person because maybe I'll get in trouble, so I'm not going to say anything. But then that person isn't advocated for and supported. But I think a lot of times we're silent or inactive because of fear of doing the wrong thing or fear of getting in trouble. And I think it was Representative John Lewis who said, like, there's good trouble I forget the exact quote, but I think of good trouble and advocating in a similar way. So I think it's don't be afraid to try something out and see how it goes, because every trial is a learning opportunity. One closing question. If you could ask one thing of the audience in relation to anything that we've spoken of today, but we'll keep it like under the umbrella of inclusion, maybe one thing that they could get started on, what would it be? I think it goes back to that piece on it's okay to advocate for things that don't necessarily apply to you. That improves the workplace for everybody else. So if you're hearing about someone saying, hey, I wish I had more leave or, hey, I don't think I'm being paid enough, have conversations about salaries, share salaries. It's not illegal to kind of just learn more about the people that you're working with or in a classroom with and learn more about the community and think about the greater good for the community as sort of the goal and not necessarily like, what do I specifically need? Because usually if we're advocating for someone else, that's usually a sign that we're advocating for community. And that just improves everyone's experience in different environments. Beautiful. Where can uh, people follow along on uh, your journey and get updates with the book and such online? Ooh, Twitter is definitely the best place. I have a Twitter name that is SamCap. It is the first three letters of my first name and first three letters of my last name. That is going to be probably the best place to check for all things related to book, design, inclusion, fonts, my dog. Also my website, which needs a complete redesign right now, but samcapila.com. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Samira. It was lovely diving into all these topics today. It was lovely to chat. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you're curious to learn more about Design to Be, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. 
share this episode with a fellow designer, your team, or on social. These are all excellent ways to support the show. And as always, thanks so much for listening.